0: Welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwees. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pono Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath, see your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A really good enough parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. Coming up on a really good enough parent podcast, I'm so excited to bring to you my dear longtime friend, Christine Castignaro. Christine is the proud mother of two wonderfully smart young women. She currently serves as the chief operating officer at Western States Cancer Research in Denver. Prior to that, Christine was the COO at Hawaii International Child here in Honolulu. Christine's life story comes in many interesting chapters, and in this episode, we'll just hit a few of those. You can find out more about her in the show notes. I was so excited to have Christine on, and without giving too much away, we'll leave you with this. Christine's two teenage daughters adore her, and her personal motto is dignity and grace. So without further ado, I give you my interview with Christine Casticnero on A Really Good Enough Parent Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of a really good enough parent podcast. I know I usually say that I'm excited, but this time my excitement knows no bounds because the person I'm about to introduce to you is one of my all-time favorite humans. And I can say that because not only do I know her as a friend, but I've also worked very closely with her for many years. So I got to see really up close and personal what a brilliant mind she has and what a charming person she is and what a great sense of humor she has. Uh, and on top of that, she is actually a really good enough parent to two of my favorite young female humans. Actually, I don't even know if they both still go by female. So I just maybe said something. Okay, we'll get into that in a minute. without further ado, I give you my dear friend, the better looking Christine, Christine Castignero. Welcome. Hi. Do you remember Hi. years ago
1: we said we were going to
0: do this? Yes, and then you went and did it, and then I took seven <laughs> years to get on board, and then you stopped, and now here we are. Here we are.
1: <laughs>
0: here we are. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely need to talk about that thing you did years ago that was so amazing, the uh, blog, podcast, website, everything but let's start at the beginning because that's where I usually like to start tell me about yourself tell me about your childhood dear friend Christine
1: well thank you actually for asking me to be here I feel like I am the definition of the title of your podcast so this is probably the only podcast we will ever do it's just because it's so well suited towards me so thank you uh I grew up in Buffalo um, my and then ended up in Hawaii for 20 years, where you and I met and worked very closely together, shared an office actually. And um, I grew up as, as a church kid. My sisters and I were raised in the Baptist church, and then somewhere in my teenage years, we were we moved to a Presbyterian church. Even though I believe our Baptist church was started by my grandfather. Um, we moved to a Presbyterian church because my mom wanted us to have more, um, more rigorous teaching of the Bible in our lives. And so we moved to a Presbyterian church. And I had a lovely childhood. It was actually really, really wonderful. Um, it got a little bit more difficult when I decided to pull away from the church. But that didn't happen until 1920, 21 in there.
0: You were 19 or 20, not in 1920.
1: No, I was 19 okay. or 20. For people who can't see
0: yeah, I look see great. <laughs> your podcast, she looks great for 120. <laughs> okay. Yeah. She actually is the better looking of us. I'll say that yeah. a few times throughout so the podcast. <laughs> okay, so the church topic is, um, it's a big one. And if we're talking about how we raise our kids and what we chose to do or not do from our childhood, that's a definite point of departure um, Mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. And it just came out of personal choice. And as you said, you grew up happy. You grew up with loving Mm -hmm. parents. You grew up with sisters who you adored.
1: Yes. Um, Yes, very much. I actually um, was very happy growing up partly because I was in such a bubble. I had our church community, our church family. Um, I had my neighborhood that I ran all around. You know, I had the freedoms I thought I should have. And it didn't occur to me till later that I was missing out on a lot more. When I went to college, my eyes just were completely... My, I was, I was just assaulted with the variety of people around me, the variety of religions around me. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't even believe that I grew up that way. I think I've told you the story how I started dating a boy in college. His name was Anand, and a couple of days into it, I said, "So Anand, are you where is your family from Italy?" And he's like, "What?" And I was like, "They're from Italy, right?" Because he had different color skin than I did. It was slightly darker. And growing up where I grew up in a suburb of Buffalo, that man, he was Italian. He was from India, Christine, India. And he was like, why am I dating you? You're an idiot. I'm from India. (laughs) I thought he was Italian. I just, I was very um, sheltered and I just lived in this little bubble. And um,
0: within a year I
1: was wearing saris and going to Indian weddings and and eating um, curries and masalas with my fingers and doing all the things that you do when you try to um, impress a boy's family. And... <laughs> so he didn't dump you immediately? No, he did not. <laughs> anyway, <Yeah>. He <laughs> I, I waited.
0: So that the haters don't hate too much, I just want to um, go back to one thing you just said. You said you were assaulted by all these different cultures. You mean that in the most positive way.
1: Oh, gosh. I thought you said you were going to heavily edit. I was, I felt unprepared by the variety of, um, I felt uneducated. I felt unprepared. I felt um, stupid because I just didn't know a lot. And it was wonderful because it opened my eyes and it was like, I learned so much more than economics in college. I learned about other cultures that I had never even experienced, never even knew existed. Um, started watching different types of movies, going to different types of places, going to different religious services. I think um, I think it was in college when I went to my first synagogue too. It was really uh, I keep saying eye opening and that's so cliche but that's really what happened.
0: Yeah and so the curious point for me is you grew up in this bubble of white Baptist, upper mm-hmm. New York, upstate New Yorkishness. Mm-hmm. And somehow when you went off to college, also initially in New York.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, this all happened for me junior year of college when I transferred to University of Rochester. Yeah. Which My was first- a more
0: diverse population at that yes, school. Yes,
1: very much so compared to what I grew up in, yeah. Yeah, and then, and then once I had it, I never wanted it to go away.
0: One of the many reasons why I love you so much. So <laughs> you graduated from college and you went off to Atlanta to work for CNN. I'm just kind of fast oh forwarding. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I not remember this. <laughs> you are a
0: com- I remember everything. You were a computer genius. I know yeah. that. And an economics yeah. genius, mm. uh, which is why we get along so well, because you do all the things that I can't mm. even fathom understanding. and you do them
1: well. Um, <laughs> So that's where you met and married your... At this, I met and married my husband, um, Russell, in 1995 in Atlanta, Georgia. And we were married until um, 2013. And we have two beautiful daughters. Um, my oldest is 18. Her name is Zaffron, And she just went to University of Georgia. She's a freshman. Go dogs. And then I
0: got into a sorority. She did.
1: I did not want her to do that because of all the judging and the uh, stereotypes that go with it, which some are true. I found out, and some not so true. Um, And then
0: my. Can I just say about Zaffy though? She's (laughs) like if one if one is dealing in stereotypes, she Uh is about the least sorority ish stereotype you would ever imagine. I agree. Um, I agree. I agree.
1: Give your kids
0: all the latitude to do what they need to do, I guess, is the answer to that one.
1: Yeah. I mean, I told her how I felt about it. I told her I kind of wished she wouldn't do it. And if she decided to do it, I would support her 100%. And I did. And it made me a wreck. Um, And she handled it like a champ. And she handled it just the way I hoped she would. And I didn't give a ton of advice. I just was there. I was just supportive. And it worked out. And she ended up, believe it or not, she ended up in the only, the sorority at UGA that has the most diversity. They accept all women. And um, I love that. And I love that that's what she chose and, you know, that she went for. Luyanda Lulu is 16. And um, we are an adoptive family. And Lulu became a Castagnaro in 2009 when she was two years old. So she's 16 now, and she is also going through a transition. She is changing from our predominantly white school here in Colorado, Douglas County, to a much more diverse high school about 35 minutes away called Rangeview. And um, so I feel almost like an empty nester because she has a car, she has rugby, she, she has a job, and so nobody's ever around anymore. So even though I still have her with me, it's it's feeling a lot lonelier around
0: here lately. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why I, of course, um, wanted to have you on, in addition to all the the aforementioned reasons, is because I do, as I mentioned to you, really adore your daughters, and I really believe that they are spectacular humans. They are strong. They are interesting. They appear to be self-possessed and confident. I know the inside scoop. I know they've struggled with some of the same normal human teenage girl things that most of Mm -hmm. us go through. Um, And yet they are just, they feel so triumphant to me. And so Mm -hmm. of course I attribute that, you know, mostly to you, tiny bit to (laughs) Russell, sorry, Russell. And then some of it's also genetic, Um, but you know, so much of it has to do with nurture. So let's talk a little bit about how you raised those amazing kids.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, thank you that you've made my year. So I appreciate what you just said, especially coming from you, because I also know how you parent, and I admire it so much. So that coming from you means a lot to me. Uh, how do I parent my kids? I think the big thing I wanted to do was raise my, my girls differently than I was raised. I didn't want the bubble. And I wanted their experiences to be vast and comprehensive. And I also didn't want to raise them in church. So I had to come up with a different kind of community. And in Hawaii, because Russell was born Jewish and I was born Christian, um, we were looking for that community and we did find it in the Unitarian Church. So the girls grew up there. until we moved away in 2017. So most of their childhood was spent in um, a, a, a church that had no dogma or followed any particular, you know, it, it has Christian and um, um, roots in Judaism, but it doesn't have the same kind of dogma. And so I felt very lucky that we found that place. And one of the things I loved is that it had sex education for kids as young as kindergarten all the way through to their upper teens. And, yes. um, you know, I jumped on that. I jumped on that. Because I, I the way I found out about sex was I literally got into bed with my mother. She was under the covers. I straddled her. She couldn't move. Her arms were like this. And it's like, you have to tell me about how to make a baby. And she's like, no, (laughs) look it up at me. And I was like, you have to tell me. And she finally did, and we used the, she used the words birds and bees, so. And how old were you in this moment? I'm afraid to say sixth grade, maybe. Okay.
0: Is that same late or early for you?
1: Well, it's the same year I stopped sucking my thumb. (laughs) So I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's a connection there.
1: yeah I don't know um yeah so I I I hopped on that um immediately and it was really hard because everything I did with I'm not a natural parent I have to think through a lot of what I do like Angela my sister from the minute she could dream about what she wanted to be she wanted to be a mom a mom she wanted to have her family her pets grow up in a you know, idyllic scenario and, and just, um, that's what she wanted. And that wasn't how I thought it would go. I thought it would be more me first and then family. Um, so I had, I had Zaffy kind of late. I was 34 and, um, didn't, I still didn't know what I was doing. I had a hard time at first. She, uh, she was born four weeks early, and she um, had jaundice, and we were in the hospital for five days, and I only held her for a few seconds before they took her away to the NICU, and then um, I think it was day three when our friend Julie Elting, I think you know her, she mm-hmm. came into the hospital, and she said, how do you like that skin on skin? And I was like, I, we, I haven't done that yet, and she's like, oh, for God's sakes, and she just... <laughs> She takes my robe. She wrestles it off of me. I'm in the hospital bed. And so there I am just out there and she grabs Zaffy and she unwraps her. She just plops her on my chest and she never left. It was like, Mm. oh, and I think Mm. I've relied on people like Julie, like you, like Carrie, like Lisa, Um, you know, all these people that are my good friends Mm -hmm. that have sometimes intervened in my parenting when I needed a kick or I needed some advice and I've always since then not been afraid to ask for it because Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it doesn't come naturally to me and often i get i get perspectives um from outside that make so much sense once they come from somebody else you know
0: which is so interesting because you are such a a confident person and kids gravitate towards you Maybe Mm -hmm. because you are cool and confident and better looking than most of us so um, i think kids like have this built-in awareness of you know what they want to be close to um so i find it interesting i don't think we've ever had this particular conversation about you and your uh not feeling like a natural parent i guess it just has never Maybe come not. up it doesn't surprise me um no. i would argue that you're one of the you know best parents i know which is why you're on the podcast but uh, it's nice to know that you also not surprising are good at outsourcing it's one thing yeah. that i have known about you for a long time is that you're really good at seeking expert input outsourcing understanding what your own talents are what's a waste of time and money you know how to use resources <laughs> in a good and productive way
1: as long as it doesn't include kate spade yes i agree with everything you said
0: as long as it doesn't include kate spade
1: yes then i I'm, don't use my resources wisely
0: <laughs> Oh, so, do you have a kate spade addiction a little bit. I never knew that about you. Is this a new addiction? I see. Yes, I'm looking at. Okay, for those who can't see, there are some very impressive-looking <laughs> handbags hanging on the back of the door in front of us.
1: This might um, be from.
0: This might be from um, Colorado. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a new addiction because one of the other things I love about you is you've always been very like basic and matter of fact about uh, just sort of functional living. You've never mm-hmm. wasted time or energy on. I mean, your house has always looked presentable, tidy, attractive, but it never feels <laughs> out or blinged out. Thank you I, for I, complimenting
1: I, my tiny house.
0: <laughs> no, I didn't say tiny. Tiny was not tiny.
1: Tidy. No, yes. tiny
0: has nothing to do with this. No, I, tidy. Oh, tidy. I know. Yes, I know what you're saying. For people who are listening, it is very late at night for Christine, and I'm blaming her for the communications right now.
1: Mercury is about to go into retrograde.
0: (laughs) So um, let's talk about people's fears, people's greatest fears in life, the things that we always think we won't be able to handle and how some of us have handled them very well. Uh, For example, when raising children, one of the things that we often – worry about is what would ever happen if I woke up one day and realized I'm married to somebody that I'm not supposed to be married to anymore.
1: So you're asking me about my divorce. So yeah. So Russ and I um, did figure out that we were unhappy married and there was nothing big that there was no infidelity, no addictions, nothing like that. Um, but we weren't happy together and we were fighting all the time. And it was very difficult to keep that from the children because we were ruled by emotion. Um, I think pretty much all logic just went out the window after a while. And so in 2013, we decided to divorce and we knew, um, that we couldn't do that just like everybody else does. Um, you know, when Lou became a part of our family, we made a promise to her, even though we didn't say it out loud, there's this heavily implied promise. That's it's a, it's a thing that you are giving this child a family that they couldn't, they couldn't have with whatever their previous circumstances were. And you never say to them, we're giving you a family for seven years. You say, we're giving you your forever family. Your, this is your forever family. So we had to figure out how to how to split up and, and keep a hold of our forever family. Um, so at the time we were at the Unitarian Church and our minister was Jennifer Kwong. I don't know if you remember him. He mm-hmm. suggested we do a a divorce ceremony and it was wackadoodle. It was a, it was like we were holding a wedding at our church. Yeah, Together. together. And, and what we did was we went up in front of everybody, the girls included, and we were up there and we held hands and we basically just acknowledged that we were not able to keep that marriage going, but we promised to the church and our friends and our family, and we promised to our girls, I remember we brought them up for this part, that we were never going to stop being a family. And um, even though everyone thought we were nuts, and it was the strangest thing, I've probably one of the strangest things I've ever um, participated in, uh, it meant a lot to me because the guilt was overwhelming for the, the pain that we were possibly causing our children and that added addition of letting down Gazi who, who maybe needed even more for everything to be stable, um, for as long as it could be. So, um, (laughs) so we did that and then we, uh, Russell, uh, we converted the bottom of our house, the bottom floor of our house to an apartment and we stayed. Living in the same house for, gosh, I want to say two years, mm-hmm. and then, um, and then when I finally did move to Colorado, um, Russell moved here too. So we have been able to keep that that promise to the girls. We spend our holidays together. We talk all the time. We go to the girls' games together, plays together. Um, he and his girlfriend come over for Christmas Eve. It's it's um, the best we could do, given the fact that we didn't want to be married anymore and yeah. we're both happier for sure for, for yeah. sure
0: and the one of the many amazing things about that part of your story is that i think 201 everybody who knew you everybody who you know had watched you and russell raised your girls was flabbergasted because you guys appeared to most people, to have the best marriage in the world, right? Everyone was like, look, I have goosebumps right now talking about it. It's like, wait, what? You know, and even how you processed the divorce was so noble and, you know, iconic and uh, thoughtful. And, you know, I think you had to do what you did. And it almost feels like the moment you realized it was over, it was over. Like there was no dragging it out. There was no hemming and hawing. You knew what had to be done. This is part of the pragmatism about you that I adore. And you did it because it doesn't help children to remain in a marriage that isn't working for the adults, right? That is the silliest thing ever because they would just suffer, suffer, suffer. Um, I also loved that ceremony because of the choice of the word together. That's what I said a few minutes ago. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. remember that part because you were in the middle of it, but those of us watching, there was this refrain every few minutes where you would, all four of you say the word together. We will blah, 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 together. We will blah, <laughs> blah, 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 together. So like you said the word together, together mm-hmm. like 10 times in that ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I think that just cemented so nicely the concept that you were going to be together forever, just in this altered state. Yeah. Um, so the power of words, the power of ceremony, the power of you know uh, honoring transition moments in life, like those are the things that really matter to children. And if we make, I'm using air quotes, mistakes, and I don't know that the marriage to Russell was in any way a mistake. I mean, it gave no. you these two amazing kids, and it, right, it was necessary for that period of your life. Um, but it's how we recover from situations. That's the message for the kids. How do you get yourself out of something and into
1: something else? That's the message for the kids. My motto, yeah, my motto at that time was grace and dignity. If I could just mm-hmm. hold on to those two things, I could, number one, survive. And number two, um, show the kids the kind of person I want them to think I am, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. like The kind of person I, you are. Well, Yeah. I, I, one of my biggest dreams is that my children, um, gosh, I hope so. One of my biggest dreams or wishes is that I am still one of the, one of the women who has influenced my children in a positive way. And they say, somebody says, who impacted your life? I want them to save my mom. I, you know, I want them to, it doesn't have to be on their favorite person. It doesn't have to be on their best friend, but I want them to be able to say out loud that I made a difference to them, not just in raising them, but above and beyond that, like in helping them become, you know, who who they are, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So one of
0: the things about you that I was mulling over before we started recording today was how you've led by example. And going back a little bit for those um, who don't know you, and me and how we met. Um, we met initially in a executive, nonprofit executive women's directors kind of club, and you were directing a nonprofit economic advice. Sorry, I can't remember what it was called. It was an economic institution. Hawaii Council on Economic Education. Thank you, Hawaii Council on <laughs> Economic Education. Sorry, all my organizations Economical are a mouthful. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Wait till we get to your current one. So um, so you were doing that. I met you and then we had lunch and you said you wanted to adopt. And so um, you adopted through one of our programs in Africa. And I was really mm-hmm. grateful to be able to be there with you when that happened at some point. And when we got back from that experience, you took me to lunch and said, here's all the ways I need to fix your organization. That's yeah. my recollection of how it went. <laughs>
1: that's when you offered me a job you said i was wrong on most of them and i was i was boy i was full of myself i was like executive director she'll get this i'm just going to tell her everything that's not going well and that she needs to fix and you took it like a champ and then you were like yeah you don't know what you're talking about and then you offered me a job at half my salary
0: (laughs) yeah because I yeah, offered you a job at half your salary. Is that what you said? Yeah. Come yeah, on, we you did. On to the, good, the good life. Um, <laughs> and you took it. Uh, Best and then decision. we worked very closely.
1: Best yeah. decision.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. We worked very closely for, I don't know how many years, but too few years in my book. And you basically were my boss, even though on paper I was your boss because you know so much more <laughs> than I do about everything. Um, but the point is that you were pulled into adoption through a personal connection to it. And then you, you know, realize this was something you wanted to work in intimately. Mm -hmm. Um, And you did until Mm -hmm. you moved to Colorado. Can we talk about the next chapter of your life and why this is relevant?
1: Yeah. So I've got so many chapters, which one are you talking
0: about? (laughs) So I'm talking about your next big job and how there's a connection between your personal life and that job.
1: So, uh, yeah, when, let's see, I was in our office that we shared after mm-hmm. work and I was, I got a call from my general practitioner, no, my OBGYN. And, um, I called him back and he told me I had breast cancer and I was shocked I was 46, no, 45, about to turn 46. Turned out I had the CHECK2 gene, which increases your chance of breast cancer and colon cancer. Um, In the end, we learned it was stage two and um, HER2 positive breast cancer. Completely rocked my world. And, and funnily enough, also showed me probably the only other way I've relied so heavily on my women, my female friends besides parenting was during cancer. Um, I mean, Lisa Foxen, who's also was in the adoption world and worked for you. Um, she was at every single one of my chemotherapies feeding me ice. So, and, and putting my hands in ice and my feet in ice. Um, what the first, so that I wouldn't lose my fingernails and um you guys all made a video all my girlfriends made a video with me to kind of tell the world because I couldn't stand the thought of calling people and saying I have cancer uh yeah it was it was terrible and the girls were young and I just I was I was divorced so my divorce went through in 2015 and then in 2016 I got cancer and it was um absolutely horrifying So I went through six months of, um, chemo and then I had a double mastectomy and then I had, um, more chemo. And then I decided I didn't want to be in Hawaii anymore because we were supposed to be there for two years and I had been there for 20. And so before I was even done with chemo and I figured out I was going to live, I decided I wanted to, to move closer to my family and my family was here in Colorado. And, um, my sister specifically. So that's what I did two weeks after my last chemo, I moved here. It took me about six months to talk Russell into it. He came a month later and the girls came with him. And this is where our whole family has been, you know, since then in terms of parenting and cancer, I think. I think telling the kids that I was sick was scarier than the telling the kids that we were getting divorced because I could make promises about the divorce. I could promise we're still going to be a family. I could show them very easily and I just didn't know what to, to promise them. When I told them I was sick, I didn't at the time know how it would turn out. I didn't know how I would react to chemo. I didn't have, I didn't even know exactly what the surgery would be at that time. And unfortunately, Safi had a friend whose mom had cancer and, um, school moms made sure that the, her and I met and then she died shortly after. So it was a very scary, scary time. And I adopted that thing again of grace and dignity. If I could do it with grace, if I could do it with dignity, then I, I could I could show I'm doing the best I could. I could do, and I think that's another thing I want my parents t- or my my children to do it, to think about me later when they're all grown up is that she was a trier, you know, like she tried, and she didn't always get it right. And when she didn't get it right, she apologized, and I think that's a super important thing too. So it was hard to be there for them when. I felt so sick and I had no energy and I don't remember a lot of that time, but I didn't stop working. You set up a couch or in our office and I would put my laptop and I would sleep and then work and then I'd sleep. Um, and that made my life a little bit easier. Uh, I, I didn't stop having people over. They would just come over and I would sit there kind of slumped over. Um, when. The chemo, I did chemo on three-week um, stints. And by the, after the first week and a half, I could pretty much operate somewhat normally. And so I would cook for the kids. We, w- we still did our chores. We still did everything. We tried to make it as non-scary as possible, knowing that it was wildly outside of our norm. And they tell me today that um, that... They were really scared. They didn't want me to know. They, they were fantastic. And there's a part of me that wonders if they weren't trying to do their own version of grace and dignity. You know, if they weren't trying to do their own, whatever the kid version of that is. Because they were fantastic. They were absolutely fantastic. And I, I'm just grateful that they're the kind of kids that they are because they helped out around the house. They didn't complain. I never felt, um, more than the normal amount of guilt that you might feel during that kind of situation. Um, but yeah, yeah. And then when I moved to Colorado, um, I couldn't even lift boxes. My, my sister practically moved me into the house that we moved into and the girls painted their own rooms and they did all the stuff. And, uh, and then I ended up COO of a cancer research organization, Western States Cancer Research Incorporated to bring it back to that circle. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's really talking about parenting,
0: but yeah. (laughs) That's a lot about parenting. I think that, that grace and dignity thing, like that's what we say about, you know, the most important parenting moments are not what you're telling your kids to do. It's not what you're lecturing them about. It's not, you know, what you... Really hope in your heart and your mind they will magically pick up on it's what you model for them, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when you say it's a mystery to you why your kids were so wonderful under pressure and handle themselves with grace and dignity, it's because you've modeled that for them for forever. And you know what? What more important time to do that than when you're staring death down and mm-hmm. you know not sure what's coming. And you still, and I remember that about you in those times, you had a great sense of humor, you never, you know, snapped or got, you know, unusually surly with people. You, you know, were very conscious of other ones around you, but you were also really good at being direct, you know? And um, I think that says a lot about you, but it also says a lot about how you've parented. So Mm -hmm, that was the, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, for sharing that, because I think, Mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, breast cancer is not so uncommon a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, for moms, I imagine it's one of, one of the biggest fears we have is not how will I survive if I'm really sick and have cancer, but it's what will it do to my kids?
1: and Mm -hmm. That kept me up at night. I actually changed my whole philosophy on life after death because of that. Not necessarily, I was worried about I I felt like I needed to have something to tell my kids of what I believed in. And before I got cancer, I was very materialistic or I was very into materialism. You, you no longer exist. Too bad. So sad. (laughs) You know, if you die, that's it. But, um, I remember laying in bed one time thinking not what what what's it going to do to the kids, but what's going to happen to the kids. What's going to happen to them if I die. And for nights I could not fall asleep and it was killing me because, <laughs> killing me because um, I was so sick and I needed to sleep and I couldn't sleep because I had gotten myself in this terrified situation. And when I finally was able to let that go is when I reminded myself that I'm not all that. And there's no way I could know that we just cease to exist. How could I possibly know that I know a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of all the things that are to know. And it's a teeny, tiny, tiny fraction every single time. So why did I think that I somehow had that figured out? And it was such a relief. And it was something that I communicated to the kids and they don't necessarily have that belief. But um, my belief was, and is, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I haven't even dreamt of whatever actually happens. I haven't thought of it or I haven't read it in a book. so it's going to be a surprise and an adventure. And it felt, it gave me a little um, piece that I could communicate to them. Um, and then I felt good about, and then I felt good about. I made a lot of mistakes when I was sick. I mean, I made, I made a ton of mistakes during my raising the girls. Not often what I do, more often what I say or how I say it when I do snap, when I do lose my cool Um, and the thing that is also wildly important to the way I parent is that you have to be willing to apologize you have to be willing to say when you were wrong and you have to be willing to say you don't know or you don't have the answer you have to be willing to talk about everything even if you don't have the answers to everything and um, I know that My girls know that I will, I will fess up when I'm wrong. And that's important to me because I don't, I'm not somebody who knows it all. And I, and, and I have a friend who has a child who thinks his mom walks on, on water. And I was always like, what, what's going to happen when he finds out? (laughs) My my kids have known, (laughs) my kids have known the whole time that I'm not walking on water. Mm -hmm. But yeah.
0: What you're doing right now is another um, fabulous part of you is that when you don't know something, you often laugh, which puts oh. everyone at ease. And that's, I think, you know, for the kids, it's like, okay, it's safe. She's laughing. It's all mm-hmm. good. She doesn't mm-hmm. know this and it's not the end of things, right? Right,
1: um, right,
0: right. Okay. Here's another hot button topic. <laughs> um,
1: you're loving this.
0: I just I want to just remind people who um, who may not know this is that when we did travel together a few times and whenever we traveled together people often thought I was your mother um, even though I'm only a few years older than you. I
1: just told that
0: story the other day. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. I'm I'm just telling it to make myself feel better for anything I'm about to ask you. (laughs)
1: Oh, (laughs) you
0: owe me. Okay, so um. Tell us if you, if you can about mm-hmm. what it's like to date as a mom, because I think for a lot of women, the idea is, and, and we don't need, you know, gory details or uncomfortableness from you, but just, um, a lot of women that I have known and love mm-hmm. feel that they need to stop dating or that it's not something they can consider when they have children who are in, you know, teen preteen years. Mm -hmm. My feeling about what I experienced, you know, watching that happen for you is that your girls really benefited from seeing their mom happy and Mm -hmm. from seeing their mom working on things and from seeing their mom putting herself out there and trying to be, you know, what she needed to be for herself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now I've just given away all the answers, but maybe you can (laughs) Mm -hmm. say a little more about what that was like. How scary was it? Why did you decide to do it and, you know, live your life and not just put yourself on ice for, you know, 20 Mm -hmm. years.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, After Russell and I were through and he was living in the first floor, I was living in the second floor and the girls would go up and down Uh, I fell in love with a woman and basically shocked everybody. And it was a person who was already in our lives. So the girls knew her. Russell knew her. Everybody loved her, thankfully. Um, But it, I was a cliche. You know, I I got divorced and then I I just, it's like I did a, a 180. Nobody expected me to get divorced. Nobody expected me to start dating this person. And It was a struggle because the girls had a certain relationship with her. Russell had a relationship with her. I had this relationship with her that changed and back to that grace and dignity thing. It was, it was messy. And I had to choose. I felt like I was actually choosing every day. Do I choose me or do I choose what the girls want? And the girls didn't want the mess. The girls didn't want I think they thought it was too soon and they wanted me to be happy, but they didn't necessarily love what's going on, even though they loved the person. And so it was hard because I would have these conversations with them and say, you know, this is what I need. This is what I need now. And this is what I'm choosing to do. And if we're not all on board, that's okay. But we got to find a middle ground. And they were happy for they wanted me to be happy christine they did i don't know if this struggle that we all went through if i talked with you about it much at the time or not as they got older it became that relationship lasted four years and then um i'm here now in colorado and just last year i ended a three-year relationship with a man who um who is black and that was a whole new situation for my girls, because here was a man coming into their life who had a completely different vibe, and then also um, had a special relationship with Luanda, because she had this uh, adult black male in her, in her life who had, who had children of similar ages and that, that could um, teach her things that I maybe didn't think to teach her or didn't know to teach her, but not just that, more understand her in a way and what she goes through differently than I could ever understand what she goes through. Yeah.
0: Just, so one quick note that we've referred to her as Luyanda and Mgazi as oh, uh, the same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. happened a while ago. And that um, she's the daughter that you adopted from a small country in Africa.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: good. Carry on. Sorry. I,
1: yeah, I don't think I mentioned. So, so... My first big relationship was a struggle as as our little three unit family, the girls and I, Um, and they were a little bit reluctant to get on that train. The second relationship, um, they loved him and they loved the way it, I was happy and they loved the way. he and his family complimented and enhanced our lives, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So when Mm -hmm. that ended, it was difficult for them. It was really difficult Mm -hmm. for them. And that has made me change my mind about, not change my mind, but give extra thought to how I want to date in the future. Because Mm. I thought I was bringing them this, I thought it was a gift to them. It didn't occur to Mm -hmm. me that it would go away. And it was almost as disappointing as my divorce. Like here we go again. I'm I, here. I say, you know, this is the way we're living our life, and look at us, and this is it. And I never prepared them necessarily. I mean, I did towards the end that it might not always be like that, and I felt really bad again. Um, they lost two, and Lou lost even more. So it was it was very difficult. Since then, I've been dating nothing serious, and um, they have really they, they they took away from it two different things. Zappy doesn't care; she doesn't want to know, she doesn't need to know. You do you, mom. You be happy. And um, Lou wants details: who is it? What are they like? I'm sure in her mind. How likely are they to stay around? And um, it's very interesting because it's the first time that they've departed and how they approach, how they approach my dating.
0: But. Yeah. Okay. It's not my job to make you feel better about your life because there's nothing to feel bad about, but I do need to say this. One of the many things that I love about you <laughs> is how you manage your dating life with the girls. It was never, and this is part of the, sort of the, I think the stereotype is, you know, that when we divorce and we're trying to figure stuff out that we often sort of go off to do this, uh, you know, sort of separately from the family. And one of the things Mm -hmm. is that you really pulled both of these people into your family. They were intricately connected. Mm -hmm. They were comfortable with your kids. Your kids were comfortable with them. You, you comported yourself as a nuclear family from Mm -hmm. the beginning. Um, You know with each of these people you were mm-hmm. a big happy family and russell mm-hmm. was often a part of the mix mm-hmm. with both of those people yes. so they the message to the kids i think the takeaway and this is why i think how you've lived your life is so admirable the takeaway is we do our best we try things out we operate with sincere sincerity mm-hmm. and and the part about you that i think is a really important message to women is You do have to think about your own needs. It -hmm. doesn't help our kids to watch mom wither up and die. It doesn't help our kids to have mom, you know, sacrifice her own needs for us. That's not a good message to send our children. And so, you know, when you say, okay, I I would like a partner. You Mm -hmm. kids are wonderful, but I need need an adult person with me. (laughs) Um, then, you know, that adult person came in both times and was a part of the family and was loving uh-huh. to your girls. And uh-huh. They got to watch, you know, the relationships and then they got to watch what happens when it doesn't work out. And, you know, I think, again, the repair moments are almost more important than success, 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 uh-huh. right? It's how do we recover? what What do we take away from that? How do we keep our head high and carry on? And through both of these situations, your girls felt so cared for. Mm-hmm. I feel watching mm-hmm. you work with your girls through these moments; they they seem to feel cared for. That message seemed to not diminish. So,
1: gosh, I hope a not. plus
0: to Thank you, you for both of those situations.
1: Thank you. It's I'm a pretty self centered person, and um, it's. I guess that's why maybe parenting doesn't come to me as naturally as it might to other people. I really had to think through all of this stuff, and I had to think through um, making sure I had to think through. It, I, I could have very easily fallen into that trap of just paying attention to the new relationship because it made me happy, and just letting the girls kind of like roll along. Um, I could I could see that that happens to people. Um, but I was so tight, I'm tight with my kids. I'm a package deal. Just like, you know, like we're tight. Uh, Julie, Julie Elton once told me that, um, you know, you're, you're doing a good job as long as they're talking to you and not just right. about the weather or what they have for lunch or, you know, it's like if they're talking to you and mm-hmm. I've never had a time when they weren't. And I talk to them too age-appropriate and, you know, privacy-appropriate. I think sometimes I tell them too much because when I do refuse to tell them something, Luanda is just like a gas. Well, what do you mean? You tell me everything else. Why is this not my business, too? <laughs> well, not all your business.
0: <laughs> That's a good problem to have, that expectation yeah. of transparency.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. We are very... Um, we are very transparent. And I, and it. sometimes I have to explain myself to people because, you know, the girls will say, oh, uh, maybe they'll say, oh, I'm allowed to swear in front of my parents. Maybe they're like 10 or something. I'm allowed to swear in front of my parents. And I'd be like, well, not really, then <laughs> I'd have to explain. So, and, and then I would feel like I had to defend myself to these parents. So the, the rule is, you know, that there are no bad words. All words are, they have a use, right? But do they have, a, it's what is what you say, it, is it appropriate? So is it appropriate for a 10-year-old to say the F word in the classroom? No, heck no. So we would talk to them about, you know, if you want to use this word, fine. Find the appropriate place or wait until it comes along and you're a lot older. Stuff like that um, has gotten me in trouble before. The whole the whole sex education thing when we started that um i didn't know how to begin it was so far outside of my understanding and we had this orientation for the parents where they gave us two the course was like six weeks or 12 weeks or something and they gave us two itiner not itineraries what's the word i'm looking for curriculums and one had an ending that was very vague about how children are made The other ending was medically correct and and descriptive, but age appropriate, but still a lot more detail than I could handle. And I remember they were talking about getting me a bag to blow into like I was hyperventilating, going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And Mm -hmm. I decided, all right, we're going to start with medically appropriate terms. I'm going to start this little baby step. So Zaki's like five and Lou's like three. And. I've got them. I'm just throwing these words around at bath time and whatever. And I realized I was doing a good job, but again, an embarrassing job. When we were at the beach, I think we we're at Queens beach, um, in front of that hotel. And Zaffy and Lou got out of the water and we were heading, packing up to go home and Russell and I are pulling all our stuff up, off the beach. And they ran to those showers to shower and get the sand off and Zafi turns around and yells way across the beach, Mom, should I wash my vulva? <laughs> I'm, I'm so proud, and I'm so horrified all at the same time. Like, yes, yeah, honey, wash that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. And that, that yeah. prompted me to talk to her teacher, her kindergarten teacher, and the woman was like, really, Ms. Castagnaro, Volva? like, what, well, <laughs> you don't so let her get in trouble. She says, this, I'm encouraging it.
0: <laughs> I rest my case. Mother of the year.
1: <laughs> There's so many of those, Christine. There's so many Fun. times when the choices I've made have embarrassed me, and then I... I defend them, and then I debrief with myself at night, that, that night in bed, and I always come down and, yeah, yeah, I would rather look like a crazy person and have my kids have no stigmas around uh, around sex than not, you know? And I would rather them have a wide and comprehensive vocabulary rather than feeling Ashamed or, or guilty for slipping up and swearing somewhere inappropriate. Like there's just so many more important things.
0: Especially as females, they need to have that sense of empowerment and they need to have mm-hmm. as little shame as possible because society dumps enough on them. Um, okay. We are almost out of time. Mm-hmm. I knew this moment would come. It's also almost midnight for you and I've kept you up about six hours past your bedtime. So um, thank you for staying up with me. The final uh, question is always, um, is there anything you're obsessed about right now that you want to share with the millions of listeners to this podcast?
1: I just said that embarrassing myself is always worth it. So here we go. You know what I've been really into for the last like two years? UAP. Do you know what that is?
0: I probably know, but tell everybody.
1: Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon. I've been into UFOs lately. (laughs) It's all my podcasts. I've I've moved from true crime to UAP.
0: Awesome. Do you listen to that guy on AM radio who's up in the middle of the night? He's famous. What's his name?
1: Yes, Coast Coast to coast. I think it was Art. Bell I don't think he's alive anymore yes. but um yeah, oh, yeah. George yeah. Knapp yeah. there's another guy that does that every once in a while I do listen um, I don't listen I don't I, I. don't love this because I think that um, you know there are aliens or we're a part of a intergalactic federation or anything like that I've, I've really um, kind of glommed on to the, the fact of how little I know And when you dive into the subject of UAP, anomalous phenomenon, it encompasses all kinds of things, not just spaceships and aliens. It encompasses multi-universes. It encompasses dimensions, quantum physics, all all these different things, how we may have gotten our history wrong through archaeology. So I've learned so much about the regular world through this, but it's also opened up my mind to that whole materialism that I used to really believe in of that. This is my body. It's made of, you know, cells and it's going to die. And this is what's going to happen. And I'll be put back in the earth and grow into a tree or whatever. And I'm not sure I believe all that anymore. And this is helping me explore a lot more ideas of what could happen and what reality really could be to all of us. And I love it. I love it. But most people roll their eyes if I bring it up. I did not roll my eyes. I burst into laughter, but I didn't
0: roll my eyes. (laughs) I I have so much to say about this, but I will save it for another time. Maybe if you invite me on to your anonymous, whatever the hell you just said, UFO (laughs) podcast. Hey, I got recommendations Um, for you to listen if you've got
1: the
0: time. I'm so all over that. I'll put that on my list. Right yeah, behind cleaning sure. my toilet. No, I'm sure yeah. it's a fascinating topic. I am, <laughs> I am supportive 100%. Anything you're interested in, you know, is usually pretty fascinating. So <clears throat> thank you, my dear mm-hmm. friend, Christine, mm-hmm. the better looking, for giving mm-hmm. me an hour of your time, especially at this time of day. I, I had so much fun. And I do sincerely believe that you are a really good enough mother. And I love that about you. So thank you. Thank
1: you. I appreciate it. I love you very much.
0: It was nice to see you. I love you too. too. We'll talk soon. Okay. Okay,
1: bye. Bye.
0: Another episode of A Really Good Enough Parent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about A Really Good Enough Parent Podcast on the Pono Roots website at PonoRoots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T S.org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Thank you. Take care. Aloha. George loves Detroit.